the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black in Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Thanks for all the support of the show. Um, if you listen to the show, I dedicate and I pledge, I promise, I will do everything I can to um, get you to retirement or get you to start thinking about things that maybe you weren't thinking about before. That's the best I can do. Um, you know, we'll talk headlines like Apple. We'll talk headlines like big auto recalls. Um, typically, as the show opens up, I get into a little bit more broad-based themes and ideas on investing. Um, you know, maybe myths on retirement. So things to get you thinking about, uh, excited about investing. So let's, let's just get right to it today. You know, first and foremost, it's been a very good year on Wall Street. And you always have to acknowledge that with kind of almost a, t a tip of the hat. And you don't necessarily have to say, um, awesome, you know, or you don't have to say, you know, I, I'm going to wait or I'm going to do this. But you just have to acknowledge that it's a 40-game process. From age 20 to 60, you should be an active investor. From age maybe 50 to 100, and that's, notice I did 20 to 60 and then 50 to 100, you should probably be more of a manager of, of wealth. Um, and when I say active investor, that means investing every two weeks uh, in hedge funds, not in hedge funds, in index fund, exchange-traded funds, and you know, stocks that are, are well-known and well-diversified inside your portfolio. A lot of reports out there today want to look at you know, the current weakness in the market or maybe the, you know, the uh, sideways action that we've been kind of seeing sideways. Then we go down and we get hit a record high. Then we go sideways and we go down and then we almost hit a record high. Um, a lot of people want to look at the stock market right now, and let's take a quick look at the market numbers out of the gate today. We have the S&P 500 down 5, Dow down 11, the NASDAQ down 20. A lot of people want to label, and a lot of reports want to blame the weakness on concerns that China's growth has declined uh, and or slowed. It's absolutely you know, one of the stories of the last 10 years is the growth out of China. So when we see slower growth out of China, it's a pretty convenient explanation, you know, in front of 
um, other economic pieces of data that we all piece together and say, okay, this is the story of the market, and I'm going to go with it. In the last two months, China's stock market's risen 13%. So maybe it gets a little ahead of itself, right? There's also some news that China's finance minister said the government's uh, – does not plan to change its economic policies despite disappointing data that it received in August. So, okay, so maybe we won't get stimulus. We cheer stimulus from the Wall Street perspective. From the economic standpoint, we hate it. Uh, We're stimulating because we're not growing, whether it be in the United States, whether it be in Europe or in China. So stimulus is actually kind of a a double-edged sword. There's a headline out there that the real source of China's weakness is that they're not going to be stimulated. That's the headline, right? Implication for some is that it means further monetary stimulus is may not be forthcoming. And again, Europe has started stimulating a lot like the United States stimulated three years ago, and we see how the U.S. stock market's done in those three years. So moving on from China, I think we get more stimulus out of China down the road. But moving on, stock market is simply acting as if it may need a little bit of a break, a consolidation period, if you will. You can't hit record high, record high, record high without sometimes – it's like sprinting. Um, when I do like an eight-and-a-half-minute mile and then I get an eight-minute mile, I usually fall back to like an 8.15. And then there's actually some weeks where like my back starts hurting from sprinting, running fast, and uh, then I fall back to an 8.30, 8.45, and I, I heal up, and I, I, I make that march for let's see if I can break eight. Same thing with Wall Street. So Alibaba had a huge IPO. Large Dever on Friday. Chinese retailers offering now totals $25 billion, netting underwriters of its stock sale more than $300 million in profit. That's good for Wall Street firms. Raising $21.8 billion. Woo! Uh, you're going to hear more about Alibaba in the future. They're a huge company now, and they've got stock that they could use as cash to go out and buy companies. A lot the way Amazon, a lot the way Google, Apple does. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a small company, if you're a developing company, if you've got this great idea company, you're happy that Alibaba's out there because now you may get acquired, but it makes another competitor out there to potentially acquire your services. Dresser Rand is being acquired by Siemens. Siemens is a German company for approximately $7.6 billion. It's been rumored in the works for a long period of time. Siemens, big, kind of think of like a GE, but a a German version of GE. Not quite, but pretty similar. Health premiums paid for these two companies today. Um, Sigmund Alrich is being acquired by Merck for $17 billion, 37% premium. So you look at these two acquisitions, and you see that these companies are willing to pay a lot for each other in sometimes not sexy areas. Like Siemens Choir and Dresser Rand is in the oil and gas industry. And that's not exactly, you don't get a 37% premium for that. But you do. Because speculation's heating up in the acquisitions market. Housing's going to be an area of focus today um, with existing home sales. I'll get to that as the show goes on. Healthy premiums being paid for acquisitions. Again, that's a positive when you come in on a Monday and there's been a lot of merger Monday activity you know, over the weekend. Um, it tells you if big companies are willing to look around and shop for each other and find cheap deals or find deals worth consummating, that maybe we should too. Um, again, I don't know what to tell you. 
as far as what to do with your investments and your your money and your your dollars. But I'm still relative. I'm not going to say bullish because I don't like that phrase, but I can still find reasons to be in this market. So existing home sales fell 1.8% in the month of August. Sales of existing homes declining. That's ultimately not the best thing. 5.05 million annual rate. NAR, which is the National Association of Realtors, they attributed the drop to fewer all-cash sales to investors. So some of the speculation, i.e., I'll pay cash for that, I'll get my money back whether I flip it or whatever, um, are starting to come off. And that tells you that, you know, the easy gains are behind for real estate for now, um, especially if interest rates are expected to tick up in the next two years. Um, on Monday, NAR uh, tweaked July's sales rate as well to $5.14 million. Median sales price of homes hit $219,800 in the United States for the month of August. Median price, $219,800. That's up 4.8% from the year earlier period. August's inventory was $2.31 million, which is a 5.5-month 5 5 supply at the current sales pace. Uh, any number over six probably means either falling prices or you get to like put a bid on the home that you really want. Any number under six means it's kind of still a seller's market, sort of. It's kind of in a zone of in-betweens right now. The number of homes available for sale were actually up 4.5% from the year earlier period. That's good, so we get more choice out there. August's pace of sales was down 5.3% from a year earlier. So the retail sales numbers uh, tied towards... Um, existing home sales. Again, there's new homes that, that, you know, a lot of people really want, so there's no wear and tear on the stuff. But most homes sold are existing homes out there. We'll take a break here. We'll carry on in a little bit. I've got a unique event coming up in the month of October. It's going to be interesting, to say the least. Um, I'll announce that probably very, very soon, but you can hint, get a hint at it by going to robblack.com. It's robblack.com. So, I don't think I'm really talking, like, cutting-edge, breaking news kind of stuff when I say this, but media is changing pretty quickly. And let me give you a really good example. We all know Netflix, right? I.e., more of us are watching what we want to watch when we want to watch it. We all know DVRs, we'll tape a football game, we'll skip through commercials, turn a three-and-a-half-hour experience into a two-hour experience. Um, Maybe some people don't like doing that because it's live and they might get spoiled and things like that, but I don't know about you, but that's me. So Paula Dean, to give you even a further example of where we're going, you know, you know Paula Dean, right? The celebrity chef, and I could say some nasty stuff. 
But I won't, other than she likes butter. Butter on everything. She puts butter on bacon. Mm, good bacon. So Paula Dean is launching a online TV network. So she bought the rights to her shows that she had previously done, and she's putting them online. So 440 episodes in total, as well as some unaired footage. Celebrity Chef's company called Paula Dean Ventures um, is going to start showing the footage with some new material. The subscriber-based network, which will use www.pauladeen.com, is going to be a portal. Plans to air her videos. Um, it's backed by a $100 million private equity from a Phoenix company called Najafa Companies. The network is part of her strategy to convert the millions of fans that she's amassed on a social media into subscribers who will pay $7.99 to $9.99 a month. Um, Included in the deal was the 13th season of her cooking show, which the Food Network, owned by Scripps, never televised after it severed ties with her over admitted use of racially charged language. How many people will sign up for an online $7.99, $9.99 a month is a great question. I look at my media subscriptions at this point in time, and I'm looking to cut back, not to add. You know, I've got both Spotify, and then, you know, there's Pandora, and then there's satellite radio, and then there's radio. Like, I've got enough media, so I'm probably going to kill my Spotify. I know, I know that's horrible, um, but I think I could live without it. I think I can. And I'm not being cheap. I'm just like, am I really getting my $9.99 a month value out of it? And the answer is no. So, um, with that said, you know, media's got a new face on a pretty regular basis, and Paula Dean is, you know, the WWE's trying to do this, too. At, you know, maybe at one point they're just hoping that we forget we sign up and we just continue to get recurring charges. But that's a pretty big deal. Bank of America got a wonderful, kissingly, lovingly sweet uh, article about them this weekend. And I told you the basic premise of the story a couple years ago when Bank of America was $8. Uh, but Barron's this weekend said Bank of America, the second largest bank by total assets, should see their shares climb 50% over the next three years. The bank could report earnings per share of $2 by 2017, which compares with $0.75 cents a year this year. Legal costs related to their global financial crisis you know, have hurt them in the last couple of years, and now the company should start to become more profitable as they've starting to settle more and more, and as they'll start to raise their dividend. Um, Chief Executive Brian Monahan has told the newspaper, what newspaper was that? Was that Barron's? Yeah. Um, that the bank has seen rise in profit in its core units. There's a lot of talk about when earnings will get back to normal. I agree with that um, statement on where the stock could go in the next couple of years. Um, and I told you that, you know, Instead of a 50% gain, I told you you could easily get a 100% gain, um, if not more. But you would have to be patient, and you would have to have just a stomach of steel. Because it's not easy sitting there hearing, you know, is it going to be a $10 billion settlement? Is it going to be an $11 billion settlement? Is it going to be a $12 billion settlement? What settlement is it going to be? Um, but I feel pretty comfortable telling you that I like the banks as an industry over time. Um you cannot go into it blindly. You can't say, you know, woo, I'm going to make all the money in the world. Um, I, I think you honestly have to look at it as it's going to take time to extrapolate. It's going to take time to play out. Uh, but without banks being healthy, our economy will never be healthy. And if banks get healthy and our economy gets healthy, um, the stock prices should reflect that. And again, if your idea is that we're going to hell in a handbasket, you probably don't want to listen to this concept.
Um, so last Friday, the Dow hit an all-time high. And Alibaba came out with an IPO that it was up 38%, largest IPO of all time. There's a lot of all-time high kind of news going on right now. Um, Art Cashin is an analyst that I like enormously. He's director of floor operations for UBS Financial Services. He sent out a cautionary note on this, basically saying, you know, markets tend to crash after, uh, you know, all-time highs. And he's just looking at history, and he's looking at the month of, you know, September being an area of volatility, October as well. The day most likely to see a reversal than any other day is September 22. He cited Dow Jones in 1929, Golden Oil in 1980, um, 1978-1979 October massacres, the crash of 1987, the mini crash of 1989, the 1997 Asian collapse, long-term capital markets plunges, all happened in late September. Um, look, looking back further, on September 22, 1929, the Dow Jones Utility Index became the final major average to make its high before the Great Crash. In 1873, a panic forced the New York Stock Exchange to shut down. So September 22 is kind of a bad day for history in the markets. Um, if that's not enough, you know, there's, you know, geopolitical issues. There's, you know, other noise out of China. There's, you know, Europe still slogging through for sure. So I'm not going to take Art Cashin's note and, like, run and hide. But he does mention, like, this is a seasonal time of year where things can get kind of choppy. The SP 500 is down 10 today. The Dow is down 43. The Nasdaq down 41. You know, first hour of trading doesn't mean the whole world in a bucket of chicken. But it's out there for you to think about. Uh, Alibaba's IPO. Would I buy into it and or not? It's the same answer with Facebook. It depends on your time frame. Um, big IPOs tend to perform better over time than smaller IPOs because they have a little bit more, you know, uh, behind them. As far as Alibaba's business and valuation, it's ridiculous right now. And it's tough to grow when you're that big. You know, for Apple to move higher at this point in time, they need, like, a game changer. or And sometimes those game changers are massive buybacks. Sometimes they're massive dividend increases. Sometimes they're massive new product launches. Alibaba trading a little bit lower this morning, uh, down 3 bucks, $90.61. Would I be surprised to see it go to 70 I want it. I'd actually be pleased and, and thrilled. And then we would start looking at it as a valuation basis, saying, you know, is it getting to where we want it to? Or you could say, you know what, I'm a young man, I'm going to take a little nibble of it now, and if it goes lower, I'm going to take another nibble lower. It's kind of a damnation game, right? We'll take a break here. We'll be right back, Rob Black, and your money. I'm Rob Black.
Thanks for listening to the show. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. If you have any questions, drop me an email, Rob at Rob Black Show. If you want to get a call on the air with a stock question, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Let's see, is there any headline out there that's just ripping at me to tell you about? Um, Use of cab drivers in San Francisco down by about 65%. Use of cab trips down by about 65%. And Uber, Sidecar, and Lyft seem to be blamed for it. Fox is really trying to get a winner with Gotham. It's a new show starting soon because they've seen double-digit declines in viewers. Again, telling you why Netflix has to be looked at why Time Warner has to consider spinning off HBO and having its own little app without the cable companies involved. The traditional way of watching TV is is declining. So Fox isn't the only company or network with question marks. Uh, There's just a lot of media out there. And then you get someone like Paula Dean starting her own media channel, and that's even another option, even though it's not legitimately big like Netflix or Amazon or Fox or CBS or ABC, NBC, uh, Disney, like, it's just so many options. And everyone wants to have that nine ninety nine a month subscriber, right? Chrysler recalling 230,000 SUVs for fuel pump issues. General Motors recalling uh, cars over parking brake fire risk. Whoa. Um, other stories out there of note today. Alibaba was the biggest IPO on Friday. Um, just a stunning number. Overwhelming demand for the IPO saw initial demand rise above $21.8 billion. Oh, the Apple iPhone. I haven't done this story yet. Do, do, do. Sold 10 million iPhone 6s and 6 Pluses. Uh, a record for a new model in the three days after the phones went on sale. Apple said it sold 9 million of then new phones, iPhone 5C and 5Ss. The iPhone is available in the United States, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Hong Kong, Japan, Puerto Rico, Singapore, and the U.K., it's going to go on sale in 20 more countries on September 26 and others by the end of the year. Uh, demand for it has exceeded expectations, to say the least. Existing home sales tumbled um, in August as investors have stepped away from that market. Let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. Welcome in. CFP Chad Burton talking retirement issues. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. Financial planning, you have to take into account inflation. Inflation is a dirty word in the world of financial planning. It's something we don't like to talk about, but you have to expect everything's going to be more expensive in the future. Therefore, you have to save more now, and you have to make it work more than inflation over time. Fair? Fair. And, you know, people, you can't just start a plan and then forget about it and think that, oh, automatically my inflation is going to go up or my income is going to go up to keep up with inflation. Even though you can run simulations assuming that – in real life, the way I see it work, Rob, is like the, the first 10, 15 years, there's actually a lot of inflation. Costs continue to go up. But when people get to their 80s, they, they aren't traveling as much. Um, their inflation really is in the healthcare range. Any healthcare expenses, we always assume 5 to 6% inflation. So it's really kind of a maybe 3 to 3.5% in the first 15 years of retirement, and then 2% on normal expenses. Healthcare costs always run in at 5 to 6%. And you can't set up a portfolio that just automatically bumps up with inflation, right? Right. You have to continually run financial planning and cash flow analysis reviews to say, okay, you know, I'll get a call that says, okay, I need a bit more money to keep up. So here's my certain costs that have gone up. And 
you know, if you don't have a plan that says every year we're comparing our net worth, we're comparing our portfolio performance versus the projections, um, we're we're comparing your expenses versus the projections. As long as everything's on track, go ahead and bump up and pull a bit more out for inflation. But if you're behind, you might, you know, I might have to tell somebody, no, you know, things things have you're spending too much money. You're spending more than we projected. Um, or oh, hey, we've gone through a period of extremely low interest rates, so the bond positions aren't projecting or kicking off as much income as projected, and you have to be realistic about, you know, whether it's okay to bump up with inflation, but you have to project that inflation in there. You project inflation, but you also project things that are unexpected, right? which that's tough to project. Mm -hmm. Like I honestly, and I'll, I'll put a hand on a Bible right now, tell you, I don't see myself ever in a nursing home. Yeah, everybody that's ever been in a nursing home said that. Okay. Everybody. And you get to a point in life where you either aren't capable of making the decision because a lot of nursing home has to do with memory issues, Alzheimer's, dementia. So you don't know. Uh, you're you're yeah, not in control fair. anymore, unfortunately. My yeah. grandmother was in a nursing home environment, and my mother's been in some in long-term care, yeah. in and out. And she'll eventually probably need to go in, or she may die. But the, it's that that piece is actually pretty easy to do, to project because you get to age 70, and there's a 60% chance if you make it to age 70 that you're going to spend some time in a nursing home, and the average stay is, is 2.7 years, and the average cost is anywhere, depending on the on the state that you live in, 60 to 100,000 a year. And so you have to simulate, do run a simulation. This is if one of you goes into a nursing home for three years, is there enough money for the survivor? If not, should you buy long-term care? Unfortunately, 2013 was a year where everybody raised their premiums, they got rid a of the fossil discounts, and priced most of America out of long-term care insurance if they're over age of 65. Um, so... When should you buy long-term care? You should start shopping at 55. 55, okay. So if you're 55, you're on track for retirement, and you still have extra income, and you can buy the insurance and still be on track for retirement, then buy it. Okay. You said the average day is 2.5 or 2.7 years? 2.7 years or so, yeah. 2.7. Just say three. Okay. Should we only buy policies for three, given that the you average... You used to be able to buy a lifetime policy, Rob, where if you go in and for, for now, 20 years with Alzheimer's, no more. Every now, But now everything's segmented. You can buy one year, two year, three year, five years. Six years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So there's also types of policies where and it's really only right for people that are sitting on you know, hoarding cash where you can put it into a type of life insurance policy. And it's only right for people that are hoarding cash because for an investment, it's not that great. But you can say put 300000 into a life insurance policy that you know would pay your heirs 600000 if you die or pay your long-term care expenses to 600000 so there's there's options like this, so these, these quasi-options that are available for people now. Okay, topic kind of over, but I have one more fun question for you. I recently ran into a guy who's got a health care insurance policy, health care insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he gets 20% off his policy if he does blood work every year. So if he agrees to do blood work, and they could kind of figure out if he's got some sort of cancer disease that they could treat early. So he has to agree to it, but it gives him a massive discount. Do you, do you like that idea, and do you ever see that coming potentially to long-term care? Like, I think I think even the the idea of some sort of a uh, medical planning that's available, everybody is they're trying to push for the preventative medicine. Right. So that's why nurses and nurse practitioners are going to be very busy trying to get people to be healthy. And you know, you have to go into retirement. If you go into retirement not healthy, your first goal when you retire is to get healthy. 
I mean, otherwise your retirement is, number one, going to be miserable, filled with doctor's appointments. I mean, you talk to some people, their full-time job is going to the doctor and scheduling their appointments <sighs> and taking their pills, and that's a horrible way to live. Seriously. I horrible do. way that's to live. That's not attractive because uh, let's just say one big long word in retirement, men, doctors, and the word would be colonoscopy. Ouch. Yeah, no fun. No. You do not, you do not want what they do to old people on a regular basis. <laughs> Anyhow and anyway, it's CFP Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. That's newfocusfinancial.com. Gas prices are falling, and that's a winner for you and me. I don't know about you, but I don't look at the pump and go, oh, three night, four night. Like, I look at how much money I spend, and at the end of the month, how much money do I have left over, and did I do good on my budget and or not on my budget? And one of those areas where I could do extra good is, Cheaper gas. So a national survey shows that the average price of gasoline in the United States dropped another nine cents, down to three thirty-seven. Not in the Bay Area. <laughs> no, 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 nay, 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 nay. Not in the Bay Area. We have higher taxes. Um, if crude doesn't rise much, the average prices of the pump may drop a few more cents. Um, the um, what do we got here? San Francisco has the highest gasoline in the nation, three seventy-nine a gallon. Whereas if you want to live in Jackson, Mississippi, you get the lowest gas in the nation. California average gas is 367, uh, which is okay. You know, I'm I'm good with these numbers. It's this kind of ties into that whole story just a couple minutes ago that I did on uh, taxi drivers. A lot of the younger people today, and when I say younger people under 35, they're saying, you know, I don't need a car. I need a small car. I need a fuel-efficient car. They weren't raised in the same era that you and I were, um, the you know Generation X of like, woohoo, SUV. Um, how we got sold SUVs is just beyond me. Big gas-guzzling things and like, gotta have them. Well, the co- economic times were better. You know, our economies was expanding, our salaries were expanding, um, and they haven't been for 10 years. So 10 years ago, the dream that was, you know, own an SUV because everything's going great. Now it's like maybe we need to tighten our belt as much as possible. So, anyhow, appetite for homes are dwindling a little bit as investors are starting to pull out of the market. All cash offers seem to be going the way of the dodo, and that's okay. Again, that helps put some real real into the market uh, versus the you know um, everything's great, everything's wonderful, and you know uh, the everyone's buying like. It gives a little bit more of a gut check. It gives the average person a little bit more time to like digest their opportunities and find opportunities. Houses are staying on the market a little bit longer is the point. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, plenty to talk about. If you want to call, you can call 800-516-1220.
There's someone I like. Or there's something that I like enormously. It's the people who take the other side of the argument. It's really, really needed. Because otherwise, we would all be totally in love. And there would never be fights. We'd all be always at all-time stock market highs. And we would be in a utopia. There's a guy named Bill Fleckenstein. He's of Fleckenstein Capital. He goes after CNBC's anchor and her rabid colleagues for talking up a happy future when there's no shot that that happens. This is pretty good. In a new interview with King World News, he is a longtime Fed critic. Fleckenstein addresses the startling shouting shouting match that he got into with CNBC anchor Jackie DeAngelis on Tuesday. He said, quote, The certainty with which the woman that I got interviewed by on CNBC this week sees the future, and the need she sees to be involved in stocks is rather remarkable since most talking heads don't know anything about investing. Otherwise, they'd be doing it instead of talking about other people doing it. You know what I mean? So basically saying everyone at CNBC is, not everyone, but most of them are jokes because they talk about people investing and they're not out there running a hedge fund, out there doing what he's doing. Now, for years, Fleckenstein has been warning investors through interviews that the loose monetary policies of the various developed market central banks would end in financial catastrophe. And the manner in which he sounded his warnings made it seem as if this would be doom, would be somewhat imminent. So last week, he was being interviewed by DeAngelis, and she said, at what point are you willing to concede that you've misunderstood monetary policy? And he got incensed. He said, I don't misunderstand monetary policy. I closed my short fund in 2009 because I knew the Fed would print money. If you want to pursue idiots like the Fed and their crazy policies, and you think you can get out of it in time, go for it. So ultimately, she kind of was attacking him for saying, you know, that he doesn't like it. But that doesn't, because you don't like something doesn't mean you have to love something. He, he didn't put any skin in the game during the duration of the current bull market. So he has missed out. But that doesn't mean he has to, like, be a loser for it. It's just he doesn't appreciate the conditions, and he's saying, I'm not willing to do it. So DeAngelis went on to say, the problem that I have with what you're saying and what others have been recommending is that if people had listened to you guys over the last few months, they've really missed out on a big piece of the market gain. That's DeAngelis. And Fleckenstein says, so what? So in the last two months, the markets have gone up by a rounding error? So what? This was kind of interesting because I kind of agree with him that everyone on CNBC, as far as the commentators, I know some of them personally. One of them used to be a stewardess at Southwest. One of them used to do technology reviews for CNET. These are not people that have backgrounds in, in economics. These are not people who have ever managed money. These are people sometimes who've had budgets of, like, uh, <laughs> all I'll say is, the few that I know personally, um, they weren't saving money. Uh, so Fleckenstein said, you know, I know my own name. He thinks there's a stock market bubble. He thinks there's a real estate bubble. And he thinks it's going to happen. Last fall, Fleckenstein told the street.coms that he would soon be reopening his short fund, and that's the last we heard of it. At some point, this bullishness that the Fed itself will crack, and there will be no buyers on the way down because there's only buying them because they had to have performance. So he says anyone close to the market who believes in it thinks that their vision of the future, which is happy times are here again, is slam dunk guarantee. There's no shot that happens. Now, again, he's out there promoting himself. If he truly didn't care, he'd just walk away and say, you know, she was being a silly CNBC woman, which is kind of what he said when he referred to her as that woman. And he didn't address her by name. 
But it is great to see both sides of the argument, and you should see both sides of the argument. You owe yourself to that. That, again, stimulus means things aren't great. And you can see that by talking to people, you know, uh, other than your neighbors in San Francisco, other than your neighbors in Oakland. Call your family who lives back in Minnesota. Call your family who lives back in Louisiana. Um, and you'll see what's out there. Stimulus is, is a short-term, you know, lift. But in the long run, we need jobs and we need wages. Officials in China and Japan are pushing back against easing speculation. ECB President Mario Draghi says European recovery is losing momentum. Strength today in consumer staples, financials, materials, weakness in consumer discretionary, energy, industrials, and utilities. Now for a story that I truly hate. And here's something I truly love. I love the stock of Disney. It's a long-term patient investor, and here's why. You can take pride that the Lion King is now the top ticket of all time. With worldwide gross of over $6.2 billion, the Lion King stage musical has achieved the most successful box office total of any work in media in entertainment history. That's stunning. The show has taken over the top spot from the $6 billion earning of The Phantom of the Opera. By way of comparison, the highest grossest film in history is Avatar with $2.8 billion. So Disney, the Lion King ticket on Broadway, but it's not only on Broadway. It's in New York, London, Tokyo, Las Vegas, Hamburg, Germany. It's a tour all across North America. Avatar pulled in $2.8 billion. It's the greatest movie of all time, right? Now, Lion King's pulled in $6.2 billion. Now, of course, it's, you have to say that there's a price difference in tickets, right? You do and you don't. You could still say that they're the largest selling per absolutely. And if you look at the average price ticket on Broadway right now, the Lion King's going for $128. Bucks. Book of Mormon for 50 bucks. Now, the best ticket for Book of Mormon's going for $477. The best ticket for Lion King's going for $197. Um, what's interesting to note about that is clearly the people at Disney and the Lion King are trying to keep it within reason for a family. Um, you know, they're not doing jacked up super high-end tickets. Again, their average ticket's higher than the other people's average ticket, but they're not going for the jacked up, let's, let's gouge people. Um, clearly a lot of advertising going on in Times Square and things like that help, for sure. But Lion King's uh, remarkable longevity and continued potency has to be appreciated on some level. So, tip of the hat to the Lion King and Disney. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. 
irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516-1220. So call in, we'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. You know, I've put together a series of what I call Money 101 or 20 financial lessons that you need to know. I kind of wanted to wrap it up with just kind of a helter-skelter, run around and throw financial advice at you angle. And this will be out of context, but hopefully you'll learn something in this you know, podcast slash radio show. From 1995 to 1999, the stock market had its best five-year stretch. And then 2000 to 2002, things got ugly. We could probably will end up saying the same thing from, you know, 2008 to 2014, 2008 ugly, 2009 to 2014 gorgeous. At some point in time, it's going to get ugly again. But again, notice that when things in 99 got to all-time highs and 2000 all-time highs, we did get back there. Maybe not every single index, maybe not every single stock. But that's, again, the reason why some indexes have more risk than others and some stocks have more risk than others. Diversification was a bad word in the 1990s, and it's back. You want to be diversified in equities, and the way you look at it is, you don't, man can't live alone on tech stocks. The analogy that I like to use is it's like having a baseball team of all Cecil Filters, or uh, I know you're saying Cecil Filter. That's kind of a weird one. Um, how about it's like having a baseball team of all um, Barry Bonds? You can't have these steroid rage-infused players who hit massive home runs and or strikeout um, and de- delegitimize the game. You can't have nine of them. you got to have some legit out there. You have to have some starting pitcher. You have to have a catcher who's got good looks and all-American charm. You have to have a catcher who's from Latin America who can you know do backflips. You have to have a team, and that's what diversification means in stocks. You can't live off one, one sector alone. You can't live off one stock alone. So you have to live through four or five recessions before you, review, before you view a recession as normal and healthy. It's a non-threatening part of a business cycle. Since World War II, recessions have become less severe. The severity of jobs lost has trended down during recessions. Until 2008, with the Great Recession, it got nastier. Um, they used to be short. They were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And this one is the, this Great Recession was a tough one to come out of. We did get to the point where we have gotten more jobs than what we were at then, but it took a long time. And again, the, the pain that's going to hit on our economy is going to be on the millennials who they feel like, you know, the system's rigged against them. It's their first big recession. They have to go through more. I've been through numerous now, and I love recessions. They take out what I refer to as uh, uh, speculation. They take out the... Business models that are not legit, that didn't work really hard. I was bitter. In my 20s, I worked my hiney off to start a company to grow a business, and I did. And then, you know, 98, 99, 2000, kids would come out of college and say, how about I start a 
backrub.com, you know, and you'll get a back rub through the Internet. It's like some venture capitalist would give that idiot $300,000. Smell-o-vision, where the Internet was going to get smell. People got money for it. There was just some bad business ideas that got well-funded. So some of the mistakes that make uh, that I think most people make, these are the top mistakes most people make when it comes to money and getting to retirement, is that they don't live within their means. Um, they get a, a sporty, racy little car. They fail to set goals. They don't save enough money. You know, Ronald Reagan, one of the presidents of the United States, he lived to 93 years old, 33 years after retirement, 10 years of very bad health, that if he weren't an ex-president, he would have been paying, you know, $100,000 plus for his care, if not more. Um, and that, you know, $100,000 for 10 years, million dollars. How many people are going to retire with a million? Another mistake that people make is they fail to live, uh, they fail to stick to a budget. Or they even create a budget. They've got too much debt. Your housing expenses should be 28% of your pre-tax income. Total monthly debt should be less than 36% of your pre-tax income. Consumer debt should be less than 20% of all after-tax income. Why should your monthly debt be less than 36% of your pre-tax income? Because 10% of your money goes to the state of California for taxes, or whatever your state income tax is. Again, I know this is an international podcast. 10% of it goes to your uh, sometimes your retail sales tax. So 20% of what you make is already gone. Maybe 20%, 25% goes to the federal government. So somewhere between 40 and 45% of your income is gone. And that's before you get to food, before you and throw in 36% of debt. You know, suddenly, how much do you have really for sports tickets? How much do you have? An insurance agent sent me an email this week, and it was kind of cute, where last week I railed against people who get season tickets to the Niners or season tickets to the Giants, and, you know, just they got to go to their games. And yet they save nothing for retirement. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't have cash reserves. That when they're, you know, Mini Cooper that they bought because they wanted to drive around and pretend they're in Paris, uh, clutch goes out. Cash reserves saves your butt. Disability insurance is really important. And I, I've suffered from this where I don't have enough at times. Where if a car hits me and I get rear-ended, and I, who hasn't been rear-ended, right? In you know, all traffic scenarios, you are going to get tagged at some point in time. My neck's not... Oh, oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm an uninsured motorist. Good luck to you. Oh, totally my fault. Totally my fault. Two hours later, you talk to the insurance. He says you ran the red light and hit him. So disability insurance is really, really important because most of us are likely to suffer some sort of loss of income than die prematurely. If you have a real legit employer, you probably have disability insurance. You should find out. Go talk to HR and find out what uh, benefits you have and don't have. Another mistake investors tend to make, young investors, is they fail to update the will. Um, you know, maybe when you're 20, you don't think you have anything, but you do. Um, my paperwork, you know, I was previously married, and had I died, money would have gone to her. Um, in my 20s, I dated three women over three years, so nine years, basically. I was a long-term relationship kind of guy. None of them worked out because we were all working our heinies off, working real hard. But failing just to update paperwork could ultimately cost you and your plan for financial issues. 
Some people focus too much on the short term. What's going to happen to the dollar? What's going to happen to the stock market? What's going to happen in the Middle East? What's going to happen in Russian? What's going to happen in every year there's something like that? Every year. What's going to happen to Asian currencies? What's going to happen in China after the Olympics? What's going to happen? It's, there's always short-term worries. It's called a wall of worry, and capitalism tends to get through it. So don't be short-term focused. Uh, assets like cash, bonds, stocks, trading cards, you want to diversify. But you also want to buy assets that have a tr- proven track record. You know, Baseball cards, if you've got some 1960s Pete Roses, probably worth a fortune. What you're buying today is so mass-marketed and so mass-produced, probably ain't going to work out for you. But history is still on the, ha- the side of stocks, bonds, and real estate. Another area where I think people tend to make the top mistakes is they don't get educated. Get a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, listen to my show, read the Financial Times, just on occasion. You don't have to do it every single day. But you have to have some grasp of it's okay out there, and here's what's happening. Um, here's where, how Amazon is a tech leader and Apple is a tech ecosystem. You have to start thinking of some of these things. So I'm talking about, you know, I'm just throwing everything I can at the wall during this hour. Hope you're listening. Tell friends about the show. It's Rob Black talking money, giving you some investment lessons and more. I'm Rob Black. Find me online at robblack.com. Email me, rob at robblackshow.com. an email that I could throw into this conversation. I'm kind of throwing a lot of things against the wall in this segment, in this podcast, in this radio show hour. Um, got an email from Randolph. Could you tell me what you think about investing with Transamerica for retirement? Is it a good company? Is it better than the four, I'm thinking he's thinking 401k. I'm confused about this company. Uh, if you came by my house last night and talked with me and my wife, I'd love your input. Um, I tend to like taking advantage of the 401k, the 403b, the 457, some sort of retirement plan offered by your corporation that you work for. Um, If not, if you're an independent contractor, then like a SEP IRA or a Roth IRA on the side. I tend not to like any company that's willing to come to your house. I'm not going to say that, but my investment companies that I like working with are low cost, low fee, good paperwork. I like Fidelity, I like Vanguard, I like TD Ameritrade. And then the choices start getting a little bit more dwindly. Schwab's fine. Um, There's other ones for sure, but that's about it for me. So be cautious. Uh, Anyone who sells you any sort of guarantees or any sort of insurance product, you don't need. Investments are investments, insurance is insurance. You insure your life through term life, not variable, not whole life, not any sort of investable life insurance. It's not that difficult, but sadly, insurance people kind of cross into an area because legally they're allowed to. Um, There was convergence back in the 1990s where banks tried to become brokers, brokers tried to become 
um, insurance companies, insurance companies tried to become banks, and it's just, it left a mess, in my opinion. Speaking about leaving a mess, my father passed away 20-plus years ago, and his financial paperwork sucked. And it taught me, like, I have to make this a message for people. Every one of you should have something that's easy, not on your computer, a binder that basically says, you know, here's your birth certificate, here's your Social Security Here's your sources of income. Here's your financial assets. Here's your liabilities. Here's your insurance policies. Wills, trust, legal documents. If you want to put it online in like a, a locked vault online, that's fine. But you have to show people how to get there. Um, writing this stuff down and having a budget on paper is totally different than having a budget in your head. Having goals on paper are totally different than having you know goals in your head. You need to save at least 10% of your investment income, in my opinion. I'm sorry, 10% of your gross income, hopefully 15 or more. One of the things that I love saying is that Scrooge was an investor god. And that's kind of a joke. It kind of is, it kind of isn't. The movie Scrooge was a great movie. Ah, mug. Tiny Tim and, you know, his dad not getting a raise for so many years and dad having to raise his kids in poverty. On the other side of the fence, Scrooge had everything. I'm not saying that the social commentary was a good one. I'm saying the investment commentary was a good one. Save your money so that one day when you're old, you will be able to have a change of heart and give away to charities and give away to family and give away to coworkers and give away. But you have to stop spending foolishly. I've got a friend who's got children, and uh, her and her husband love to buy their kids whatever they want. Kids got a little behind on reading. Let's buy the kid 30 reading books. Kids, uh, you know, had a start of the year. Let's buy the kid a jumpy house. The kid has, like, too much money is being thrown at this kid. And it's going to hurt when down the road there's nothing there. How easy is it to become a millionaire? A millionaire will pay you forty dollars to $60,000 a year till the day you die. You start at age 20 and only need to save $1,000 a year. That's less than 80 bucks a month or about 80 bucks a month. Uh, start at age 25, it's $1,700 annually. Again, a little over 1000 a month. Not a 1000 a month. Um, a little over 100 a month. Uh, what's that, 150 125 If you wait till age 30, uh, your numbers are $2,900 a year or $250 a month. If you wait till age 35, you need to save $5,000 annually. If you wait till 45, you need to save $15,600 annually or $1,300 a month. So you literally go from under 100 bucks a month at age 20 to over $1,300 a month. Start early is the lesson. Credit scores are important, especially in your 20s, kind of in your 30s, less so in your 40s. So bad credit means you pay more for a house than a person with good credit. Um, I wrote this tip such so long ago that listen to how it mortgage rates were. For bad credit, you would pay 9% on $200,000 a month. For good credit, you'd pay 6.5% on $200,000 home or $200,000 loan, which is $1,200 a month. So the difference between $200,000 at 9% versus $200,000 at 6.5% is about $350 a month, $3,500 plus a year, right? So credit will make you a prince or a pauper. Parents, you should never, ever let your kids get bad credit. Until they're 21, you should help them. Um, and I say a secure credit card is the way to do it. 
I know a lot of parents like they gotta go stand on their own. They gotta go stand on their own. Uh, I don't think so. I think when they're coming out of college and they're paying more for a new car, used car, than their, you know, their friends and coworkers because their friends and coworkers didn't get into bad credit. And trust me, when you're under 21, you are stupid. You think you know the world, you don't know the world. And you're you're cocky, you're arrogant, and suddenly like, woo, I'm gonna camp out tonight, and I'm gonna go uh, get tickets to the big football game, and I'll be first in line, and drink a little bit too much, chip a tooth, put it on credit. You forget that you know your quarter just started, you have to go buy books, put it on credit. Next thing you know, you have a bad credit score. It didn't take long to do that, but it happens. So parents, get a secure credit card for your kids and help them and guide them through it. There's great, speaking of credit, great website, annualcreditreport.com, annualcreditreport.com, where you can see what your credit uh, is. You can see if there's any mistakes, and you can see your work history. I highly recommend it. There's three big credit unions, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion. You can get a free credit report every year from them, once a year. So out of those three, I would divvy them up four months, and every four months, pull a credit report. Late payments obviously play a big role in your credit score. Um, if you ever had a problem paying a bill, consider contacting Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, and explaining to them what happened. If you keep a high debt on a regular basis on credit, you have a problem. Consider credit counseling. It's going to hurt your credit score, but you have a bigger problem than a credit score. Length of credit history is important. I had a Bank of America credit card for like 20 years. And then finally, I wasn't using it, wasn't using it, wasn't using it. They closed on me. Oh, and my average credit length of my credit history went down. Because that was the guy, you know, carrying me on. Like, you get drunk on a flight, and you're like, what? I can get 25,000 free miles for a, a Hawaiian Airlines flight? Sure. And then 20 years average with one minute turns into, like, 10 years of credit history. So that's a killer to lose that long one. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblack.com. Drive me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. This is a uh, Money 101. It, this is a financial lessons that you need to know kind of show. Talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Big fan of Talking Heads. Uh, I think their best of is one of those best ofs that everyone should consider. Again, talk money, idiot. Don't talk music, right? A um, couple of things I'm doing this segment, this hour, this show, is I'm doing a Money 101 financial lessons, things that I wish I kind of knew. Good debt versus bad debt. Um... Credit card debt is non-tax deductible. 
costs more in interest than mortgage debt. Mortgage debt's good, low cost, it's tax deductible. Um, student debt, oh, it's, it depends on what degree you get, if it's worth it or not. It depends on not only what degree, but how much you pay to get that degree. It depends on if you're able to go out and get a job. So there's good debt and bad debt. Tend to say that mortgage debt and student debt, good debt. Uh, tend to say that credit card debt, car loans, not good debt. In your 401k, this is probably the most important thing that you're ever going to see at work. You're going to have choices on money market funds, stable value funds, bond mutual funds, stock mutual funds. I tend to say as you're younger, you want more stocks, and stocks being some of the small cap funds, some of the mid cap funds, some of the large cap funds, some of the emerging market funds, some sort of real estate income fund. I don't really want you going after bonds when you're young. Unless you're scared, unless you're afraid, unless you can't handle the market volatility, which it is there. And there are times where I wish I had more bonds and my pants are soiled. But ultimately, I think you want to build diversification with large, mid, small, with some sort of emerging and some sort of income. And if you want some more value, you can do large value, mid value, small value. You should have those in equal proportion with the growth of the same thing. Uh, but again, you're going to tinker with this because there's no one formula for one person because right now some 25-year-olds listening, some 35-year-olds listening, some 45-year-olds listening, it's all very, very different. Speaking of that 401k, that 403b, that 457 where I just said, you know, what's going to be in it? You don't want one fund. Like the S&P 500, some people say that's the one I want. It's done well, but it's not diversified. It's weighted towards very large cap companies. So the years like right now, that Apple does well, it does well. And I don't think you want to put yourself in that scenario. If you ever quit or leave a company, I like taking the 401k with you. Whether it's through a rollover to a self-directed IRA. What's that? Well, your 401k is an investment vehicle. And when you leave a company, it stays there until you move it to either a new company or into your own hands. If you move it into your own hands, you'd call 800 Fidelity, 800 Vanguard, 800 TD Ameritrade, or whatever their number is, and say, I have an old 401k. I'd like to roll it over. It's self-directed IRA. Thank you very much. Please send the paperwork. Or if you go to a new 401k, if you go to a new company, you could roll it over to them. But I don't see a lot of people doing that. I see most people rolling it over to a self-directed IRA. You get to take control of it. You get to tailor it to your needs. You get to check the website whenever you want to. You get to transfer money into it. Uh, you never, you know, bad things can happen if you leave a company's for if, Bad things can happen. Another angle that I like to get out there and push is investment clubs. This is networking. And none of you are going to do this, but I love the idea of one of you doing this. Getting together with friends and family, getting together with coworkers and talking about, hey, how much have you saved? I heard that guy Rob Black on radio say that you need to save 10 to 20 times your income before you retire. Well, I'm not ready to retire. So what's the number at, you know, age 40? What's the number at age 30? At age 30, I hope that you have somewhere between ten and $40,000 saved. At age 40, I'm hoping it's somewhere between one hundred and four hundred thousand, and um, $400,000. Because that's going to compound and grow for you to get you the numbers that you need to get to. To retire and, like, live in peace and not have to eat cat food. An investment club could be just five people informally getting together on the first day of the month. 
at maybe a brewery or maybe someone's house with a bottle of wine. It's social. It gets you out of the house. It gets you a little more educated. What did you learn? What did you learn? I love that kind of angle. There's a great game that, uh, there's a couple books that I really like. Um, Value Investing, A Balanced Approach, Value Investing with a Master's. There's a book called Death of Competition, which is one of my favorites of all time. And if you know me, you know that I like to sit down and reread the best. Um, I do it with three fiction books a year. And I introduce new fiction to my life on occasion. Um, but I also do it with the business books that meant the most to me. There's, you can buy this book used right now online by James Moore. It used to be really tough to get. Um, for four bucks. Uh, you can get the hardcover for a penny, but they're always going to jack up the shipping on it. You know that. I know that. It's called The Death of Competition, but it's by James Moore. And it's leadership and strategy in, in the age of business ecosystems. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, it helps make a little sense of the biological ecology it uses as a metaphor for understanding business environment parallels. Like, for instance, I think Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Alibaba have a distinct advantage right now because they're so large and their shares are worth so much that they don't even have to have cash. They could just issue shares to their company to go out and buy any interesting young company that comes out. They are the 800-pound gorillas right now. There's a radically new cooperative competitive relationships, you know, uh, you recently heard of Apple forging a relationship with IBM. Fifteen years ago, IBM forged a relationship with, with Microsoft. And collaboration and customers and suppliers and investors and communities all cropped up around this. Um, James Moore it was the president, and I think he still is, of Geo Partners Research. Um, talking business strategy. So, again, it's one of my favorites. Um, you have to reconsider the way you think of business at the most basic level. It's thought-provoking. It starts off with understanding the Hawaiian Islands, the jungles of Costa Rica, and then it goes into boardrooms and trying to give you a deeper, stronger, advantageous look at how to look at business. Um, again, I don't think you have to buy it. I'd like you to. Um, at least consider it. So... I think it's one of the books that meant the most to me, The Death of Competition by James Moore. Um, Peter Lynch, these are people you should Google and, you know, do a little Wikipedia on and maybe see what did Peter Lynch do right? What did Warren Buffett do right? What did Benjamin Graham do right? These are three or four people that, you know, James O'Shaughnessy, that I think you could, you know, like, see what did they do to become good at being labeled great investors. Again, Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, James O'Shaughnessy. Um, I like to come back to the concept that investing is not fun, that it takes a plan. I like to distance run, and to me, distance running is 5 to 10 miles. And when I start on a, you know, a 10K, I like to say this is where I not need to be you know, at mile 1, mile 2. Hopefully I'm feeling this at mile 3. I want to feel a little pain around mile 4. Feeling pain is good to me. Feeling you know, hurt feels managing that and knowing where I can go is good. So investing takes a plan. 
just like running five miles does or six miles, same thing. You need a plan starting at age 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60. And that plan at 30 is going to change a lot because you're going to marry, you're going to divorce. You're going to marry, you're going to have kids. You're going to marry, divorce, have kids, and remarry. And she's got kids. So don't think your one plan is going to be the one plan for the rest of your life. You want to know the secret of earning 20%? If I, if I knew the secret to earning 20% every year, I wouldn't tell you. And anyone who tells you that they can beat the markets on a regular basis, anyone who tells you that they're like, did you have a plan in a good market? Did you have a plan in a bad market? I did. I did great. Well, then why did their mutual fund fail in under a year? Like, you have to be really, really cautious on people and gurus who promise you that they know everything. Because they don't. 100 richest people. It's an issue that comes out every year. You know, you're not going to find any day traders on it. Um, you're going to find that people got wealthy over with like oil, with technology, with real estate, with inheritance. No market timers, no red light software. No, I'm going to tell you when to buy. Here's the newsletter. I'm going to send it out. The moment I send it out, push, it's going to come straight to you. That's not how anyone's gotten wealthy. Not on the list of 100 wealthiest people. That should tell you something. Most investors should pick their nose. I saw a guy recently pick his nose and eat it. And I was like, that is disgusting. You are a grown man. And he did it in like a group of people. Like, if you're going to do it, at least do it in, in the bathroom or something. Like, do it and have some, some shame, dude. I'd rather he do that than pick stocks. Most individuals shouldn't pick stocks, and yet they do. They want to hit a home run. When you pick stocks, you start managing a team of investments, compromise of multiple types of assets. And picking a stock... Pick your nose. Don't pick a stock. Last message I want to get across in this segment is ugly duckling investments usually grow up to be even uglier investments. Once upon a time, there was an ugly investment named Prince Lucent. And while Prince Lucent grew up to be an even uglier investment of nothing, don't look at stocks that are trounced as, ooh, that's my ticket to get in, to like big riches when it bounces back. Typically, if it looks ugly, it's for a reason. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing more. Find me online at robblack.com. Email me, rob at robblackshow.com. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm doing an event or a show. It's really geared towards a lot of the basic things that are out there that somehow we tend to mess up. We invest from age 20 to 60. We live off that from age 60 to 100 with a little supplemental income from Social Security. Trust me, it's not that much. Or maybe it is. Maybe you're very frugal. Um, 
There's a book story called Waiting for Goodell. Great, wonderful, insightful human condition. But you don't want to do that with stocks. You don't want to wait too long. Um, I've dated losers. I've bought stock losers. I felt at times when I was like dating a loser, I should have probably dumped her a little bit sooner than I did. Or same thing with a stock. That's, I'm trying to get you to think of, like, don't linger too long with a loser. You know, I never wanted to say out loud that my girlfriend had horsey teeth, but I knew it. Everyone else knew it. I made the mistake once of buying a company called Exodus Communications, which if you look back at, was a disaster. It was a cash-burning cow, which I love the idea of a cash-burning cow. Um, and I wrote that one down, psh, easy 50, 60, 70% loss. Disaster. And it, what they did was hosting, which is now, 15 years later, everyone hosts. Everything's online. Don't put it in your own office. We'll do it for you outside. And it had a good management pedigree. Like, everything was right. And it was a wrong investment at the wrong time. It was the right investment at the wrong time, I guess is the right way of saying that, right? Um, something I want to talk about is market timing. You'll hear people say, time the market. Show me one market timer worth $1 million. Show me one market timer who's turned 10000 into a million. I'll show you a market timer who sells newsletters or software or apps. Uh, market timing is moving in and out of asset classes as they rise and fall. Market timing is opposite of diversification. Double your money in every two to four months. Promises with a $99 class followed by $400 newsletter or a web service that's $4,000. I know people have done this, and they feel like they get intimidated into doing it. Don't you want to double your $10,000? If you double your $10,000 every four months, it's $5.3 trillion in 10 years. Give me some of that. These people who sell market timing are creeps, in my opinion. There's four factors that move a stock. Four. It's how is the market doing up or down. That can move your stock. It's how is the industry doing, up or down. Let's say you own a cloud company if, or a security company. If the whole security industry is moving up, your stock could be moving up even though it stinks. If the whole industry is moving down, your stock could be moving down even though the whole industry stinks. What else moves a stock? The company. How are they doing? And then there's visibility. You know, the visibility on Microsoft's Operating system is getting murkier and murkier. You know, we're seeing more free operating systems, and we're seeing more apps and things that make functional computing experiences without that expensive operating system. Is there still visibility? Sure, but it's going lower. Inflation is the number one thing that you need to worry about. When inflation goes up too quickly, it saps consumers' buying power. When inflation is moderate or slow, and it gives greater buying power to the consumer, it leads to an increase in spending. The Federal Reserve's job ultimately is to monitor and adjust short-term interest rates based on inflationary trends. Mary Meeker was an analyst, and she's a great analyst. And she covers the Internet, and she comes out with an annual report on the Internet, and it's fantastic. It's 200 pages of slides. That just Oh, it's all that. It's all that. But she works for either a bank or brokerage or advisor. So the people that you see cropping up on CNBC, they don't work for you. And they're tempting, but don't fall in love with them. They can change their opinion. You could be on vacation. You'll never, ever, ever hear about it. I once said Susie Orman's like the devil. 
I couldn't say that Susie Orman was the devil. I can only say that she was like the devil because I couldn't prove that she was the devil. She's not the devil, but she does sell products. So even though she appears on television and radio and she looks like I'm your friend, girlfriend, she never tells you when she's wrong. She speaks as only she's right all the time. Oh, I knew she was going to make an appearance. Everyone makes mistakes, but it's the pre-ego, always corrector of generic advice that America doesn't need. The point here is that, you know, people on radio, on television, books, newsletters, apps, they're never held accountable. And you need to be cautious on that. And if you don't think she's selling a lot of product, you are insane. She sells a credit repair kit for $99 that she can get free by Googling credit repair kit or free credit repair tips. I find that vile. I would avoid God syndrome at all costs. A lot of people want to be right. I know that fuel cells are going to change the world. I know that Japan's going to fall into a recession and fall into the ocean. I know that gold is going to $600 an ounce or $5,000 an ounce. Normal people subtly speculate on things, whether it be scientific breakthroughs, directions of foreign currencies, and they don't have the slightest clue of what, what they're talking about. You don't want to fight the market. I think you want to buy the best of the best, whether it be mutual funds and or stocks. Um, you don't want to always find yourself saying, well, this is a great stock. If only people would see it. You can have one dog with fleas, but not two, because then you start getting a kennel of them. Anyhow, if you ever have any questions, drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. Or rob at robblackshow.com, rob at robblackshow.com. If you want the 25 basic principles of investments, drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. Give me a call, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. Thanks for listening. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.